The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. The triune God manifesting himself perfectly in Jesus Christ. We then considered the, the word of light and life and the notion of authority and infallibility. And if you deny it to Christ, you transfer it elsewhere. We then considered the four witnesses to Jesus, which I know you all remember from yesterday. And uh, then last night, we uh, considered the sign of transcendence, Jesus walking on the water. One of the witnesses to Jesus is his signs, and we considered one of them last night, saw his kingly status, his absolute lordship and command over all of nature. Tonight, we're going to be considering one of Jesus' discourses, the living water, in John chapter 7. Let's uh, turn there together, John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I'm not going up to the feast, for, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If, anyone, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. 
And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, he will do more. Will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the, to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises. From Galilee. This is a lengthy passage, and I think it was worth reading in full because it's the culmination of a crisis that the presence of light in the darkness has created. The signs that Jesus has been doing, the teaching that he has been giving, is culminating now in a moment of enormous tension between the existing authorities. And Jesus. The occasion of this particular discourse was a feast of the Jews called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Ingathering. And it drew very, very large crowds to the city from all over the Jewish diaspora. The booths that uh, the name uh, gets uh, for the, 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 the origin of the name for the festival was the fact that they would often gather branches and twigs and so forth together and make temporary tents, temporary dwellings to remind themselves of what it must have been like for the people of Israel in the wilderness 
making temporary shelters. What was the wilderness experience like? It was a festival where they tried, in a sense, to recreate the wilderness experience. It was also a declaration of the completed harvest. And in some respects, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, was symbolic of the age to come, the final ingathering of the Messianic age. And the central focus of this ceremony, this, this festival, the central focus of the Feast of Booths, was a ceremony focused on water. Every day during the festival, water was drawn from the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus had already done a miracle earlier, and brought to the temple in procession, while the crowd, as they followed behind this procession, carrying this water, would sing from the prophet Isaiah, with joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. The prophecy of Zechariah 14.8 was recalled that on that day living waters would flow out from Jerusalem. We see that pictured again in Ezekiel 47. And so the theme of Jesus' discourse here, its culmination is in his declaration of himself as the water of life. Not only does the passage again speak to the identity of Jesus, but it also exposes the intentions of the authorities in a very peculiar and distinct fashion. That lying behind their religious zeal was actually a murderous zeal, a desire to kill Jesus. The high point comes when Jesus, on the greatest day of the feast, stands up and declares his messianic identity. But let's pick up the different sections of the discourse one at a time. Don't worry, we won't be here all night. Um, we'll take the first nine verses for a moment and consider the conflict that arose concerning our Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, that the family of the incarnate Son was not without its problems. And that should give us all some degree of comfort. The family that Jesus was born into was not perfect like yours. It was very much like most ordinary families. It had all kinds of difficulties. Jesus' brothers initially were skeptical about their brother. They were resentful of the attention, obviously, that Jesus' life and ministry was bringing to the family, some of the negative press they were receiving. In fact, verse 5 actually tells us quite clearly that they did not believe in him at this point, for not even his brothers believed in him. What did his brothers urge him to do? They knew that the authorities were seeking the life of Jesus. And yet they still urged him to go up to Jerusalem to the feast to show himself to the world. Show yourself to the world. I don't know whether you're ever frustrated by the fact that, as we've discussed already this week, that God doesn't conform himself to our best ideas of how he ought to conduct himself, how he ought to establish the truth of the message, how he ought to go about validating the Christian faith. In philosophical terms, Jesus' brothers were evidentialists. What's an evidentialist when he's at home? Well, the evidentialist um, uh, argument is a very simple one, simply this. 
give somebody enough evidence, establish something with enough evidence, and they'll believe, they'll submit to God. It sounds reasonable. The problem is it fails to recognize the depth of the human problem. Many of us tend to think that the problem for the non-believer, the skeptic, is their great brain, their powerful mind, their incisive intellect. And that if only we could present them with enough evidence, they, they'd believe. They'd come to faith. But Scripture actually tells us that our basic problem is not information. In fact, we're told by the Apostle Paul that men and women know God, but not wanting to worship Him as God, they hold down the truth in unrighteousness. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the Creator. Man's basic problem is not information. The problem is that in our fallenness and in our sin, we're not willing to accept the evidence that stares us in the face every day, that's present in our own hearts and consciences every day. Many in the modern church hold that if only we had the right technologies, if only we could use the right media, if only we employed the right novelties in church, we could restore the church, bring in a trampoline act, show more videos, so forth. If only we could make church more entertaining, people would believe, surely. They'd be more inclined to come back to the fold, as it were. If only the pastor would use all the right arguments. Sometimes pastors don't use enough arguments, I grant that. If only the church could come across as all-embracing, equalitarian, seeker-sensitive, non-judgmental. Everybody would love us. They'd love the church. They'd love Jesus. People would fall into the church. This is a total myth, my friends. We've been trying this now for 25 years or more. It doesn't work. We've been trying it in Europe even longer than you have here, and it doesn't work. Churches are emptying, and young people leave the church quicker now today than they ever have, despite all of our innovations. Much modern evangelicalism has failed to see the central tragedy of people's lives is that without grace, men and women hate the truth. Unless God inclines our hearts. His brothers practically order him to go up to the feast, don't they? They say, <clears throat> go up to the feast, show yourself for who you are. What's their assumption? Their assumption is, look, if you're really who you're saying you are, show yourself, they'll give you a fair hearing. Everybody will give you a fair hearing. They're a neutral bunch. They're an objective bunch. Show yourself to the world. It's exactly the same temptation presented to Jesus in the wilderness by Satan. Show yourself in spectacular fashion to being the Son of God. But there is no impartial hearing in a fallen world. Our hearing of the gospel, our hearing of the message of Christ without the work of the Spirit is always biased. The time is in the Father's hands. Now, Jesus is not afraid to go up to Jerusalem. He's already said in, he says rather later in John 10, that uh, he doesn't, his life is not taken from him. He lays it down of his own accord. 
The world which seeks its own glory apart from Christ is lived, though, is condemned to live, not in terms of God's timing, where he has made everything beautiful in its time, but embraces a perspective on time which evacuates time of all of its meaning. Jesus says, my time, God's time, is not yet come. But a lot of people embrace a view of life and reality that says, time is meaningless. God hasn't ordained the times and seasons. He hasn't purposed a time for everything. I love that passage in Ecclesiastes. There is a time for everything under heaven. You don't need to read French existentialism if you read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's all there, the futility and absurdity of life under the sun without God. It's meaningless. It's futile. And a perspective on time which says, well, it's going to end in heat death. It's going to end in oblivion or it's just endless cycles of meaningless time. No purpose, no teleology, no timing of God in anything. Time, therefore, has no meaning. It's meaningless if it has no purpose, no direction. God does all things in his appointed time. He's made everything beautiful in his time. And in this point in time, he is ushering in through his son, Mark 1.14, the reign of God, in which it will be clearly seen by those who believe the total meaning of all time. That there is not a single moment of your life which is meaningless or without purpose or without design. I take great comfort from some people find this doctrine hard, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. I don't think there's a more comforting doctrine in all the world than the sovereignty and providence of God. Nothing can happen to me, nothing, outside of the all-personal providence of the living God. And he holds all things in the palm of his hand. His timing is always perfect. Jesus points out that their time was any old time. Verse 6, my time has not yet come, but your time's always here. The world cannot hate you. Why doesn't it hate them? No great cost to their attendance. Well, because they're part of it. At this point, his own brothers, not yet believing in him, are part of this resistance to Jesus. You see, Jesus, <clears throat> the problem for Jesus' ministry was not a bad PR campaign. It wasn't that his press officer was useless. He needed to fire his chief of staff and get somebody else. I mean, if we believe that we as the church of God are holding out the light of Christ, do we really expect that uh, people are going to throw open their arms and embrace everything that we have to say? Jesus' difficulty was not poor public relations or his failure to use sufficient multimedia. After all, Jesus did work some fairly significant signs. Raising the dead, healing the lame, opening the eyes of the blind. The difference, the radical difference in the nature of the believer and the non-believer is moral and religious. That's the essence of the difference. It's not primarily information. Why does the world hate Christ today progressively and then the faithful Christian more and more progressively? Because Christ calls attention to the evil nature of a fallen world, and that's what will get you into trouble. 
That's what gets Christians into the most difficulties, or at least it should. It shouldn't be your bad attitude. It shouldn't be your insensitivity. It shouldn't be my conceits. If we're going to get into trouble, it should be because of faithfulness to the Christian witness. And if we are being faithful, Jesus says, in this life you will have troubles. You will be persecuted. You will face difficulties, especially if you call attention to the basic difference between people, which is religious and moral. What the world wants is to have a moral equivalence of all things, in all things. I was uh, in a television discussion recently with uh, a Muslim panelist and an atheist and I think a Catholic priest, if I recall. It's not a joke. Um, And... uh, I called attention to the radical difference between Christianity and Islam. The radical moral difference between Christianity and Islam. And calling attention to those kind of things today, it might be something else, is seen increasingly as evil. I was reading about a woman in the United Kingdom recently while I was um, on holiday there a few weeks ago visiting family and friends. And she was uh, being interviewed by one of the major national newspapers, defending her killing of her unborn child. She claimed she was saving the planet. She said she was reducing her carbon footprint by her abortion. Now, this uh, environmentalism gone mad has become a suicide cult today. It's interesting that in the 1970s, Scientists were absolutely convinced, and I've read papers and research concerning this, they were absolutely convinced that the world was going through a a catastrophic cooling. From the 1970s, for about a decade. Now apparently we're in a catastrophic heating up. And man is the infestation on the planet that needs to be dealt with. You see, the love of the planet, this false religion, in the name of love is actually the hatred of people. Let's kill the unborn in the name of saving carbon. Reducing, sorry, carbon emissions. One commentator on this passage, uh, referencing verse 7, the world cannot hate you, states, where Jesus says that he... uh, testifies about it, that its works are evil. That's why it hates him. Commentator John Marsh writes, this is more than to acknowledge that Jesus is a moral critic of the world. It is a claim like that made in John 3.18, that by his actual presence, the world is being judged, judged by its reaction to him. It wasn't that Jesus was a moral critic, that the world hated him. It was that his presence in the world was symbolic of judgment. And doesn't Scripture say that the life of the Christian is the savor of life to those who believe, but it's a savor of death to those who do not? Increasingly, we see the hatred of Christ appearing in our time, just as it does here in Jerusalem, because Christ indicts a fallen world and tells the world it needs salvation. The reason why... Humanism can embrace, and in Canada we can embrace and love all other religions, but Christ is that no other religion tells us that we're a sinner in need of salvation. 
All other religions stroke your ego. They tell you that you can work your way to righteousness, to God. Or that you can meditate your way to nirvana. Only Christianity confronts you with your own condition and makes you face yourself and calls you to repent. We know how difficult that is. The second part of the discourse, verses 10 through 24, deal with righteous judgment. Jesus' teaching in verse 15, he's gone up to Jerusalem and he begins to teach, and people are shocked. They're amazed at his teaching. They're astounded by his teaching. How can this possibly be? He doesn't have a PhD from U of T. He's not been accredited by the acceptable schools. He doesn't have the badge of authority of the authoritative teachers of the time. Since he's not schooled in this fashion by our accredited teachers, how can he have this ability? Where did he get this learning? He's not been authorized to teach by our authorized rabbis. And so this left Jesus open to the accusation that he was just propagating his own ideas. So Jesus' response is very important. It's critical. Verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Now this This is one of the most significant statements about a Christian understanding of knowledge anywhere in Scripture. If anyone, verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority, from human resources. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that knowledge has a moral or a religious foundation. Knowledge cannot be separated. Epistemology cannot be separated from morality, from aesthetics, or the technical term, if you want to take it home with you, axiology. You cannot separate knowledge from values from morality. If anyone wants to do God's will in his heart, if he really wants to obey God, he will understand and recognize the authority of Jesus Christ for what it is. He'll see it. He'll understand it. There's a total unity here of life, will, and knowledge. The knowledge of Christ is not simply an intellectual exercise. It's not simply the affirmation of a few propositions. To truly know God's will, to truly know the identity of our Lord Jesus Christ, there has to be something going on, a transformation going on in the heart. To seek one's own glory rather than the glory of God, that is, as we heard this morning, to live for self rather than to live for God, leads to a failure to understand and a failure to embrace the truth. This is a very different way of approaching the question of knowledge. Leslie Newbegin, in his commentary on John's Gospel called The Light Has Come, said this. Please, please listen carefully. He says, but how is this to be known? It cannot be proved from some other source of authority. There's no bar of judgment before which God can be summoned. 
Only he who does God's will can know whether the teaching is from God. And what does it mean to do God's will? We have already been told in John 6, 29. It is to believe in him whom he has sent. It is a call to total commitment in obedient and loving faith. There is no other way by which God's revelation of himself can be received. Any attempt to validate the claim by reference to some generally accepted criteria is to foreclose the possibility of revelation and return to the world. There is no way of receiving God's revelation of himself except one which involves the abandonment of every intellectual and spiritual security. There is required a simplicity which must appear to the philosophers of religion at best naive and at worst arbitrary. Those who do accept and obey the calling of God, who do his will, know that they are in touch with the truth. This is echoing, actually, in a roundabout way, the advice of St. Augustine. We heard about St. Augustine through Michael this morning, who said, I believe in order that I may understand. Faith seeking understanding. Anselm said it later. Now, this goes against everything that you see in the philosophical tradition since Plato. It's a total reversal of Plato's thinking, of the philosophical tradition of the West, which has been arranged and organized around the idea that the autonomous human mind and reason is capable of coming to know the truth, reasoning up to truth, irrespective of one's moral condition. You see, the human problem for the non-believer is not that he doesn't think logically. I know a lot of non-believers who are very logical. In fact, I would say that our culture in Canada today is just being increasingly logical, increasingly consistent with its own commitments. If you don't believe in the transcendent God of Scripture, then of course you won't see life as valuable. You certainly won't embrace a Christian view of marriage. You will certainly look toward euthanizing the old. There is nothing to prevent that kind of thinking developing an even greater logical consistency. The problem is that logic as a tool just cuts in the wrong direction when it starts in the wrong place. Today, the opinions of everybody, the morally degenerate, murderers, rapists, criminals, they're just as valid as a missionary serving in Afghanistan. Everybody's opinion is just as valuable. We're supposed to be interested in everyone's opinion and respect every point of view. Sorry to be politically incorrect tonight, but I do not respect every point of view. And I think sometimes we're far too nice about certain points of view. We're too Canadian and cuddly when we should be more biblical in our orientation. That does not mean we speak without grace. It does mean we speak the truth. There is no neutral, rational realm common to all by which we can simply reason somebody into the kingdom of God and you've Heard it from an apologist. Our common ground with the non-believer is that they are made in the image of God and they know God, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They recognize that they're creatures. They recognize the problem of guilt. They recognize the need for atonement, even they pursue it in all kinds of aberrant ways. 
The goal, in fact, the notion of man's objective reason, its goal is actually the war he wants to make on his maker. And so what he does is he uses his reason typically to assert his own independence and to allow him to try and assert denials of God. And I think I said to you earlier this week that the only thing the non-believer can do is just negate everything. There's nothing positive to be established in terms of knowledge. The way of the non-believer is the way of negation. And the most consistent people in this were the existentialists. He says, well, in the end, I'll kill myself in order to truly negate God and take the power of life and death into my own hands. The only problem is, actually, as even Jean-Paul Sartre himself acknowledged, he couldn't... uh, escaped the fact that even when he thought about his own funeral, he saw himself watching his own funeral. He couldn't escape the fact that every time he thought about himself, he said, I feel I'm constantly referred back to God. No matter how much I deny it, I know it contradicts, he says, all my other beliefs, but I'm constantly referred back to God in my thinking. You see, it's the suppression of the truth. Man's denials in the end don't change anything, but the The important thing to notice is that what Christ does here is indict all philosophical approaches to reality that begin with human beings, their judgment, their experience as the final standard of truth. Because all they can ever do is end up in their endless circles of skepticism and irrationalism. And I've debated a lot of atheists, and their arguments are all the same. They don't actually have any. I'm quite serious. All they can do is state their own personal doubts about the God of Scripture. And every atheist I've ever debated has concluded with a moral rant against the God of the Bible. I usually simply ask the question, if there's no God, why are you so upset? How can you make moral judgments about a God when there's no basis for morality in your perspective on the world? Why should you be morally indignant when there's no transcendent basis for moral judgments? It's just your opinion and mine. But you see, men know God. Jesus unmasks the hypocrisy of the authorities as well in verses 19 through 24 on their failure to understand the intent of the law. They're professing to be followers of the law, yet they violate it. He says, why are you trying to kill me? Why are you trying to kill me? You're lawbreakers, yet you want to put me to death. So they say, well, you've got a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus' response is telling. In fact, you will find that many of the, some of the early pagan critics of Christianity accused Jesus of sorcery, of some sort of demonic power. Maybe he studied down in Egypt and learned sorcery down there. The Talmud accuses him of sorcery. It was a clear recognition, even in the hostile witnesses, that Jesus performed the miraculous. But Jesus' argument refers them back to a previous sign at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. In verse 21, he refers them back to this, where he heals a man on the Sabbath and is accused of being a lawbreaker. So Jesus, as he so often did, showed that he was not the lawbreaker, but that they had misunderstood the law, misapplied it, and were hypocrites. The Mosaic practice of circumcision took precedence over their practice of the Sabbath so that the religious leaders permitted 
the Sabbath to be violated if you call circumcision work because God still brought life into the world on the Sabbath day. Children were born. And on the eighth day, which may well fall on the Sabbath, you could circumcise a child. We now know that it's not until the eighth day that a child's blood develops the agents to coagulate, I think is the term, properly. And so if you circumcise a baby before then, they bleed to death. But circumcision being required, they do that on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, yet I heal a man, I make him whole on the Sabbath day, and you call me a lawbreaker. I'm renewing my creation on the Sabbath You think nothing of circumcising a child. Why should they be angry then when the one, the Lord of the Sabbath, gives life on the Sabbath? It's a classic example of Pharisaism, this. Because the provision of the eighth day, I don't think was an insistence on you have to do it on day eight. Rather, it's you can't do it before day eight, but you know, day nine or day ten would probably be fine. Pharisaism wants to insist on a minutiae. And this legalism replaced true morality and truth so that they would accuse Jesus of lawlessness for healing someone whilst justifying themselves for circumcising a baby on the Sabbath. It's incredible, isn't it? The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Jesus commands them, verse 24, he says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, let me cite one commentator on this point because I think it is so important. And I quote, to many, ch- many churchmen today are guilty of the same Pharisaism. To illustrate, Matthew 7, 1 through 2 is commonly used with Pharisaic intent. Judge not that you be not judged, for with that for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. It is a common interpretation within and without the church that this text forbids all judgment. Whereas in fact it tells that if we judge with false non-biblical measures or standards, we shall be similarly judged. What is required of us, as our text tells us, is to judge righteous judgment. That's what Jesus says. With God's law as our measure of justice. A lot of problems we face in the church today come because people say, oh, well, you know what? Uh, Don't judge. What's going on over here? We've got a couple living in adultery. They've just taken communion. Don't judge. Don't judge. No church discipline. Don't judge. Never mind that Paul said that because of such sins, people were dying in Corinth members of the church because of an abuse of the Lord's table. We're told very strictly in Scripture that the examples set forth in the time of the nation of Israel were for for our learning, for our understanding that we wouldn't rebel against God. But how often do you hear when you raise an honest question about biblical truth and reality in the modern church, don't judge. Friends, that's not biblical. That's not Christian. 
Jesus says, if you're going to judge, use righteous judgment. We all have to make judgments about things. You make judgments every day. Shall I walk into the road now or not? Shall I do this? Shall I not do this? Is this person telling the truth or are they not telling the truth? All of life is about making right judgments. How can we expect to be salt and light in the world if in the church we look just like the world? If there's nothing distinctive and different about us and we're caught up with Phariseeism, oh, that young person had a drink last night. Oh, that person, I saw them smoking a cigar. Why don't we focus on things that are actually in Scripture, not strain at gnats and swallow camels? Because Phariseeism focuses on human traditions, ideas of men. I know I'm standing on some toes. I can see your faces. But you know what? Let's, if we focus our attention on what Scripture has to say, because it's the, the Pharisees were caught up in human traditions. That was their concern. Jesus told them repeatedly, take Mark 7 as one example, you set aside the law of God with your tradition. And sometimes we've made our own traditions. Don't say anything. We don't do that in this church. More important than the word of God. And we wonder why the church is ineffective. Today, our legal system has degenerated into Phariseeism as well. Technicalities, legal precedents, procedure, not justice. 25 through 44, the living water. A dispute arises in verse 26 about Jesus' identity. Do the rabbis know who he is? Is he the Messiah? Is he a prophet? Who is this man? He's, this teaching that he's bringing. The way he's challenging the authorities. Many people knew Jesus' family home in Galilee. He was known to the people, and, the prof, and the, they also knew that the prophets said that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, the city of David, not Galilee. Obviously, they were unaware of the account of our Lord's birth. So Jesus speaks plainly about his own origin in verse 29. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. He's pushing this crowd in this moment of crisis to reach a conclusion about who he is. Notice he doesn't say, oh, hang on a sec, you don't know the story. Let me just explain it to you. Okay, my father had a, my father, earthly father, had a dream. My mother, he doesn't go into a long explanation. We had to go and register in Bethlehem. That's actually where I was born. And also we came through Egypt. So fulfilling the prophets, I came out of Egypt. No, Jesus doesn't go into some sort of defense like that. Why not? That's what I would have done. Hang on. Wait a minute, you're almost there. I was born in Bethlehem. I did come up through Egypt. No, he says, I come from my father. He's pushing them to understand who he is. In verse 31, some are at the point of believing. Many of the people believed in him, verse 31. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? When God reveals himself, in the incarnation, there is both an veiling and an unveiling. 
It's why Jesus often did not actually told people sometimes not to speak. Commanded the demons to be silent. He didn't allow demons to announce his identity. He told them to be quiet. Because in the incarnation, there is both an unveiling, but also a veiling. We sing it in the hymn, don't we, at Christmas? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. In God's unveiling of himself in the Son, there is also a veiling in his flesh. And that's what's so offensive about the Christian message, that here in this man, Jesus Christ, there is a veiling in an unveiling of who God is. It's the concreteness of Jesus. It's, it's his presence. It's his human reality that's so offensive. There's nothing offensive about the idea of God, is there? There's nothing offensive about an idea. A speculation, a philosophical speculation, something in my mental furniture. People are very happy with Buddhism. They love it today. They don't understand it, but they love it. It's the default religion of choice because the idea of non-being or of being or of pure being, an abstraction is fine. An abstraction doesn't bring you into judgment. It doesn't hold you to account. It doesn't challenge your walk, your path. At this critical juncture, the authorities are fearing losing control of the situation and they send temple guard to arrest Jesus in verse 32. They refuse to believe these authorities that their temple, their religious order could in any way collapse. It doesn't matter who this guy claimed to be. They were in charge. They were the religious authorities. They were in the driving seat. Even though Christ prophesied the pending destruction of Jerusalem, which culminated in the Jewish-Roman War of AD 66 to 70, when Titus finally surrounded the city and plowed up the very foundation stones of the temple, when Jesus warned them and said, I'll be with you a little longer, verse 33, and, I'm going, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. They say to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Is he going to go and teach the Greeks? Is he heading to the south of France, to the Côte d'Azur, to become the forebears of the Merovingian kings so that people can write novels about it later? Where is he going? We see this again and again. Is Jesus going on a European tour, perhaps? When people religiously do not want to hear what God has to say, they will always reject the message of Christ. And that's why the interposition of the Holy Spirit is so important. But you know, that's what gives me an absolute confidence when I preach the gospel and when I do go to debates and I do these things because I know the Holy Spirit's at work and He is working. And it's not dependent upon me, it's dependent upon Him. I have to be faithful, but it's His work. The Scriptures urge us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Perhaps there's somebody here tonight who's not sure. Not sure. They're not convinced. Not absolutely certain that they've surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, his Lordship. Embraced him fully in terms of his identity. Scripture tells us that the timetable is not in our hands. Seek the Lord while he may be found. We don't have the luxury of putting it off. Jesus says, 
I'm only going to be around a little while and where I'm going, you, you can't come. We often think we've got the luxury of saying, you know, I'll, I'll deal with that another time when it's a bit more convenient. I'll talk to some folk this week who are telling me about friends or relatives. Oh, they're saying that they'll do it on their deathbed. They know it's true, but they'll do it on the deathbed. People still say that. Even now you might be thinking, you know what, I think this Christianity is true, but I just want to get through university, have fun, revel a bit, get it all out of my system, and then maybe I'll come back to it and take it a bit more seriously. You don't know that your heart is going to be inclined or soft toward God in three, four years' time after university. Their willful misunderstanding of Jesus' statement, maybe he's off to teach the Greeks, ironically, is fulfilled in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. Many shall come, Jesus says, from the east and from the west and sit down in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The sons of the kingdom, it's going to be taken from them. It's going to be given to others who will bear fruit. Jesus made it clear, and they were furious with him. Furious with him. In verse 33 through 39, we're reaching now the final climax of the discourse. The last day of the feast, the procession of water coming up from Siloam, which would be normally poured into a bowl in the temple to the west of the altar. It's possible that Jesus' statement about being the living water preempted this or followed it. We can't be certain. Perhaps it didn't happen that day and he comes forward. We don't know. But he gets up and he declares himself to be, before this custom of pouring water into this bowl, he declares himself to be, I'm the living water. I'm the true feast of tabernacles. I am the true in-gathering. I am the fulfillment of the messianic kingdom age. This was the eschatological promise of an abundance of water coming out from the temple, bringing life to the desert and all the waste places. An outpouring of a life-giving spirit. A new age was dawning, and in Christ this promise was being fulfilled. Water symbolizing the total quenching of thirst. We can't live without water, can we? You can survive mate, in up to 40 days or so without food. Water, it's a matter of hours, isn't it? Three days, maybe? Four days? Water is so basic, we need to take it daily to live in any degree of health. And you know, Christ tells us here, essentially, whatever our needs, whatever our past sins, our failures, our struggles, our wounds, our loneliness, our sins and its fruit, we can come and take freely from the water of life. It's flowing out in Christ. Blaise Pascal, one of my favorite apologists, even though he was French, living in the 17th century, Catholic. He said something very striking in his pensée. He said, sinners lick the dust. In trying to quench their thirst, they're thirsty. And they lick the dust. He said, that's what sin's like. In trying to quench their thirst in any other fashion, in some other way, it's like licking dust having a mouthful of sand when you're dying of thirst. The second thing that Jesus points out is that this quenching of the thirst, this giving of this water of life, 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow, verse 38, rivers of living water. You and I are not the termination point of the gift of the Spirit. It doesn't say that the Spirit is given that we might simply be blessed and have lots of gifts and have a wonderful Christian life. But it's to flow out of us, to be given out to others. What was now normative, what Jesus was saying, and and John qualifies this, of course, in verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost meant that the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit was now normative in the life of the believer. In certain exceptional cases, we find the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit, as as in the life of David, for example, he could pray, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, restore to me the joy of my salvation. But now, this presence of Christ, this by his Spirit, was now normative for the believer, flowing in and flowing out. You know, Paul tells us actually in um, 1 Corinthians 10, 4, that the very rock that was struck in the wilderness that gave water to the Israelites, he says it's Christ. He's always been the water, but now his normative presence given indiscriminately, Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, his spirit being given to his people, inaugurating this new time as prophesied by Micah, Micah 5, 2. Ezekiel 47 is perhaps one of the most important passages. I haven't got time to read it now, but verses 1 through 12 speak of this water coming out from the temple. And as the further away from the temple the water gets in Ezekiel's vision, the deeper the water becomes. It goes out and refreshes all of creation, every creature. Jesus gets up and he says, I am this water. I am living water. If you come to me, you'll never thirst. This river is destined to refresh the new creation and remake the world. You know, the new creation began with the resurrection of Jesus. It continues in our regeneration, our new birth. What does the scripture say? If anyone be in Christ, they are a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is speaking of the triumph of Christ's kingdom. You see, you and I are not the termination point for the work of the Spirit. We're not the end. We're the means of the realization of this great promise. That's why we're not to be selfish with our gifts. We're tributaries. And And through our lives, in terms of godly service and work and faithfulness in every sphere that God has called us into, It's for the benefit of the world that this spirit has been given to us. Yes, we are blessed in the giving, in the flowing. We're not a container. We're a tributary of the work of God's Holy Spirit. I think the church in our own time, one of our problems has been that one of the reasons for our decline is our self-obsession. Sometimes an obsession with the institution, the World Council of Churches, more and more organizations to aggrandize the institution of the church. Sometimes the focus is on me just being blessed, touring from one conference, one bless up to the next. Where is it? Pensacola. No, now it's in Florida. No, now it's here. 
following around the blessing and not living and working in terms of faithfulness to God in every sphere to which he's called us. We're not the termination point. I think if we really want to be blessed by the Holy Spirit, the best thing we can do is be a blessing. It's better to give than to receive. He who refreshes others, the scripture says, will himself be refreshed. The worse the world has got, the more pietistic Christians have become. Don't confuse pietistic with piety. There is a true piety, true religion, the relief of orphans and widows, living in obedience to God, walking with God, faithfulness to God. There is a true piety, but there is a pietism that retreats from everything. And what we've seen in the last century is two world wars, the Cold War, communism, fascism, terrorism, economic disaster, including the most recent one, collapse of the rule of law, social degradation, delinquency, legislation, and legalization of murder. There's been more people killed by war, mass murder, torture, slave labor camps, famine, abortion, and religious persecution in our time than ever before. And in the midst of all of that, we have world leaders blathering on about the triumphs of modernity and enlightenment. It's nonsense. Islam sweeps across Europe. Christian children are kidnapped in Islamic countries and sold into slavery. Crime and sexual slavery overwhelm even our own city, our own cities. And sometimes in this context, we're content to hold forth about our latest spiritual experience. Let's not knock the experience. We all need encounter with God. It's important. But if it ends there, if that's it, aren't we missing what Jesus promised in terms of the outflow of the water of life? When in the last verse here, the last verses, the temple guard come back without Jesus. The worst excuse for a failed arrest is offered. The worst excuse in history, perhaps, for a failed arrest. No man ever spoke as this man does. You just think about that for a moment. A temple guard, professional soldiers are sent to arrest Jesus, and they're so captivated by the truth that they hear, they come back, and they say, no man ever spoke like this. And then we see the true horror, the true venom of these authorities, these Jewish leaders of the time. They, they are received with contempt. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities believed? Sound familiar? Normal enemies, Sadducees and Pharisees, all of a sudden they're friends. Best pals against Jesus. The unity of opponents, normal opponents, in the hatred of Christ is a common phenomenon. The elite of the nation were united in their opposition to Jesus. The common military men were not allowed an opinion about Jesus. It's equally true in our time. The university sphere, the political sphere, they've rejected the authority of Christ. The arts has rejected him. What business have you got believing in him? How many university professors believe that these days? How many politicians? We don't believe that anymore. Who do you think you are believing in that stuff? 
Ottawa and London, they've rejected him. How can you believe it? And the contempt for ordinary people from these cultured despisers of Christ is reflected, I think, in our own world. Verse 49, but this crowd, the mob, the people, does not know the law is accursed. This is a typical contempt for ordinary people. It's amazing that some of the Some of those who shout the longest and the loudest about democracy, equality, and freedom despise the common people the most. That's why they're not actually interested in what most Canadians think about a given issue. It doesn't matter what people actually think. They are the philosopher kings. They're the new elite. They're going to tell you what you need to think. What do you know? You still believe in that Jesus stuff? One of the leaders, Nicodemus, whom we've met before in John 3, I hope you've met him before, cites the law of God. Is it lawful? Is it legal for us to condemn this man without first giving him a hearing? One of their own. What do they do? They turn on him. Are you from Galilee as well? You've been deceived as well. Anyone who disagreed with this governing elite in their hatred of Christ could have no standing in public affairs. Sound familiar? Trial by media, trial by public opinion, trial by human rights tribunal. It's amazing how self-righteousness, evil, how self-righteous evil actually is when it turns morality on its head. It's frightening the moral appeals of anti-Christianity and evil today. And when we stand in the face of all of this, and we look at all of this, we sometimes think it's too big. Joe, you're overly optimistic. This is way too big for us. The world's changed. Canada's changed. It's too much. We can't stem the tide. Tremble at the enormity of it. We need to be captured again by this vision of the living water flowing out from the temple, transforming the world. You are a conduit for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in terms of the kingdom of God through the man of justice, Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us how to deal with it. He tells us to pray. Deliver us from evil. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our sins. Deliver us from evil. We're not to concentrate on evil. I know I sometimes cite things that are relevant to our cultural moment, but we're not to concentrate our attention there. We're called rather not to be frozen by fear, but pray for deliverance and work in terms of the kingdom of God. Let me close with the words of Abraham Kuyper, a great Christian theologian and thinker in the Netherlands, served as prime minister of the Netherlands over a hundred years ago. He said this, One desire has been the ruling passion of my life. One high motive has acted like a spur upon my mind and soul, and sooner than I should seek escape from the sacred necessity that is laid upon me, let the breath of life fail me. It is this, that in spite of all worldly opposition, God's holy ordinances shall be established again in the home, in the school, in the state for the good of the people, 
carve, as it were, into the conscience of the nation the ordinances of the Lord to which the Bible and creation bear witness until the nation pays homage again to God. Why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, the living Word, the living bread, and living water. We thank you for your promise that out of us shall flow this living water and it will flow into all of the world. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. That when you were glorified, you sent one the same as yourself to live in us, to empower us, to quicken us, to strengthen us, to give us all the resource that we need in our own time and in our own culture, in our own situation, in this hour, at this time, the time that the Apostle Paul says, we are the people upon whom the end of the ages has come because Christ is about his kingdom work. Lord, we long to be faithful. We long to be a righteous and a holy people. We long to be those that uphold your word in every area of our lives. We long to be those who walk in the spirit, not, Lord, descending into the legalisms of Pharisaism, but walking in the liberty of the sons of God, delighting in your law, perfect law of liberty. Give us grace, we pray. Help us to live out faithful and fruitful lives before our neighbors, our friends, our families, our communities. We pray for your church. We pray for our cities. We pray for our nation. That you would once again move in and through your people. That your spirit would flow out of your church again and touch our world for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, we've got 10, 15 minutes, so let's just take the, uh, the first question, a gentleman at the back here. Um, there's some teaching going around the churches today that uh, talk about Christians that can lose their salvation, and they use the verses in Hebrews, I think it's six, uh, there's three or four verses there. Can you comment on that? Well, those have been hotly debated verses, obviously. My response to that is I don't believe that the true believer, one who is truly born again, can be unborn again. I don't see how it's possible to be, regenerate, be, to be regenerated, to be made into a new creature, and then have that process reversed and be unmade. Uh, and that puts all of the, ultimately puts the emphasis almost entirely upon man as the deciding factor, as the primary agent in salvation. What I do think, though, is that Jesus' teaching about the different types of soil into which the seed of his word can fall is very, very important. And uh, you'll recall that some of that soil, the stony ground, for example, the word can be received initially with gladness and it springs up, but then it has no root or it fades away. For others, something springs up and it's choked. And so the, the scripture does talk about those who endure, uh, those who, it's, it's, it's those whose faith is tried that prove their faith is genuine. So, no, I don't believe that man is at the helm of salvation. Therefore, I do not believe that man, by his own initiative, can lose his salvation. I believe that when we are made a new creature, it's possible to backslide. But those who ultimately do not return to the Lord and fall away as apostates uh, were not from amongst us. 
and uh, the apostles talk about this, that there were those in the early church, in the early churches, that uh, appeared to be those who were true believers. They showed all the signs of being believers, but were in fact not. And um, so, no, my response to that is I don't believe that passage in Hebrews teaches that a person can lose their salvation. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.